Hey everyone, this is Justin. If you're a fan of the show, you can really help it out by heading over to iTunes and leaving it a rating and review. It really helps raise the profile of the show. Before we get any further, this episode will be the end of Season 1. Thank you so much to everyone who liked and subscribed to the show. We'll see you soon in Season 2, this October. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. It's a rainy Wednesday in May, but as I step out of my car, just down the street from the house that I grew up in, at the Royal Mills in West Warwick, Rhode Island, the clouds part, the sun comes out, and it's a beautiful spring day. I'm here to interview Llewellyn King of the White House Chronicle. The last time I was in the Royal Mills, I was 13 years old and jumping between the rotted and burned out floorboards. It's two decades later, and I'm standing here at the door about to interview a true giant of the journalistic world. I'm greeted at the door by a bow-tieless Llewellyn King, flummoxed to see him without his trademark accessory. If you missed episode 14, you should go back and listen to it. We rejoin that conversation discussing the 24-hour news cycle and our obsession with it. The 24 hours, if you take 24 hours as being a news cycle. There's no particular reason. It really goes back more to newspapers than to electronics, because every 24 hours a newspaper came out. But you have to look at least in a week and ideally a month. If you look, for example, at the current president, and you can see repetitive aspects of what seems to me to be a very destructive presidency, uh, the antipathy to our traditional allies, the embrace of people that we really probably shouldn't be embracing, like the Saudis. Uh, but you can't see that in 24 hours. You can see it in a week, you can certainly see it in a month, uh, as he continues to, uh, to uh, really destroy old alliances, or certainly to endanger them, and to take actions that are contrary to long-established U.S. policy, intent, and even law. Um, one of the questions that I had for you about uh, news versus uh, journalism, and you've been talking about the 24-hour news cycle. News is part of journalism. I mean, they are not separate things. It's the tip of the iceberg. News is the tip of the iceberg. Um, history is the full iceberg. Uh, journalism is looking at more of what you can in the time and the technology and the economics available. You don't necessarily get more for putting more investment into it, but sometimes you can. Um, if, you have, if you take the great newspapers and you select three of those uh, as being the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, not only do they have very good basic readership, their franchise is very good, but they have the money to do the job right. Are we in uncharted waters um, in terms of uh, news media today, or is this a lull in a, a larger cycle of news and journalism? I don't know 
the balance there. I think we're in a lull in terms of taking in new talent. I think we're desperately waiting for a new way of making money to be invented. You have to have money to do this job right. You can't afford to have bureaus in Paris and Afghanistan and uh, um, across Asia and every capital of the Middle East where you really need to have a reporter unless you have money. It's a very expensive undertaking. Flying in at the last moment doesn't do it. People who are not on the ground, who do not have sources and contacts, and that all-important thing, perspective. And if you're not on the ground, you don't have perspective, no matter how bright you are. Nothing annoys me more than the way they fly anchors in. I mean, why did all the American news anchors fly to Manchester because there had been a terrible terrorist attack there? Were they going to get more news because they were reading something someone had written from Manchester? It's a, it's a publicity game. It's not for real. Uh, for real is having reporters around the world and then having enough space in the newspaper or its equivalent. And I think the actual newspaper, as we have known it, may give way to an entirely electronic version. Uh, it costs money. You're never going to get away from the need to have reporters. You need very bright reporters writing about the intricacies of the Department of Defense or, or energy research, etc. Uh, you just cannot do it superficially. And today, some of the best minds are actually working in what used to be called trade journalism. Uh, having spent some time in the White House press corps and time in trade journalism, I'm not all that impressed with the White House press corps. There are some very good people. But the nature of it is that it doesn't have any depth. As time has gone on, it's gotten harder for White House reporters to cultivate sources in the White House because we're separated in a way we never were. I first started going to the White House in the Nixon administration, probably, and we could once we got through the gate, we could walk around, we could talk to people, they'd invite us in their offices. Over the years, that has been eroded. Now you have to have a minder with you everywhere. This was especially started to deteriorate, I think, mostly oddly under Carter, and it just continued. I said to a young person who was escorting me to the old executive office building, which is on the White House grounds, you know, we used to walk here. And he said, you didn't. I said, yes, you did. What do you think I would do? <laughs> there are no <laughs> secrets here. Do you think I would pee in a bush? I mean, what, what is your role here? He said, I'm escorting you. Uh, very foolish. But that once you take away a freedom, it's very hard to give it back. Uh, and uh, uh, so it, it's very difficult. You've got all of these things that are lined up against good journalism. Plus, you have the public appetite, and you have to have engage the public appetite, otherwise you're wasting your time, um, for sensationalism. It's always there for sensationalism. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, it's cloaked in exclusives in the New York Times or Washington Post, but those things are exclusive and exciting because they're also sensational. I personally think that everything you write and everything you broadcast should do one of two things. And I just should leave people knowing something they didn't know before or thinking something they hadn't thought before. Then you've won. Then you've done your job. If you've got neither of those, then you're only playing to their prejudices.
regurgitating old news, which a lot of which goes on. Um, if you had a newspaper that, or a, any news operation that was totally indifferent to the way it was received, nobody would read it or watch it. There is an example. There is a daily newspaper that nobody reads. The Congressional Record, it's called. It is the newspaper that everybody edits, that has everything in it that everybody wants in it, except readers. It doesn't have readers, because nobody cares. Uh, so you need journalists, you need the presentation, you need the excitement of journalism. Uh, ideally, you also need good writing, solid judgment. Uh, that very much depends on the kinds of people who are coming into journalism. And I fear today, with a few exceptions, it's not very high quality. What you see on the national news broadcast, that's the exception, or in the New York Times, or in the Washington Post, which, by the way, is doing a very good job at the moment. It's not particularly good. I also think that the Boston Globe is doing a good job. But the, the rest of the, the, that second tier of newspapers really isn't doing very well and is not admirable or even essential. Do you think that has to do with the fact that most of these second-tier newspapers that you've mentioned are subsidiaries of larger publications now as opposed to independent regional papers that they used to be? I know the thinking behind the question, but no, I, I don't accept that premise at all. It's to do with money. Uh, newspapers mostly cannot afford serious coverage of their own state houses. They cannot afford the courts. I was down in the, uh, the uh, courts in Virginia, and I had to be a professional witness. And uh, I got there early, and I was wearing a suit and looking sort of official. And somebody who I think probably knew me from television said, um, oh, let me show you around. So I said, as she showed me their new courthouse, and uh, she, I said, well, what about the reporters? She said, oh, we don't have them anymore. You know, they used to be here. They used to have their own table in every courtroom. I thought, what a tragedy. Virginia courts, these judges uh, sending people away and there are no reporters there to catch their carryings on. Journalists are very important to have them in the courts, in the courthouses, in the hearings, uh, and of course, burrowing away to find out what's happening. I'd like to change gears if, for a moment, if we could, and talk about your show, The White House Chronicle. It's celebrating its 20th year on the air, That's uh, right. together with your co-host, uh, Linda Gasparello. We've been doing it for 20 years. It's a half-hour weekly show on a mixture of PBS, uh, PEG stations, that's the old public broadcasting, now it stands for public, educational, and government. There are a lot of them in Rhode Island, by the way. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of peg stations, some commercial stations, about 200 of those. But we, we have very difficult to count them because of the way it's distributed. So we settle for believing we're on 200 stations in total. Um, and the audio is on radio uh, at Sirius XM, Channel 124, the POTUS channel. So we do put the show together with some thought of the audio dimension to it. You know, radio is fascinating because you have to fill in the picture for people. Um, if you, um, in the days of radio theater, which was a huge undertaking, an actor friend of mine in Chicago, where it all came out of, was in 10,000 radio plays. 
That's incredible it how is. much radio there was when radio was the principal new exciting medium. Uh, but you, but they must have been very interesting to write because you had things like put the, that poker down, you savage monster with your red eyes, um, the kind of writing. So we, we do have a thought to the radio dimension, and the, the program is also distributed globally by Voice of America, both radio and television. And you and uh, your co-host, Linda Gasparello, have... Uh, at times build the show as news with a sense of humor. Well, humor helps. Humor works on us. There's no reason you're not being profound by being... This is something academics get into all the time. They think being dull is profound. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's not so. It's not so. I mean, some of the greatest humorists we've had, Woodson Churchill was a great humorist. He was very funny, and he made a joke of anything he could, whether it was whether it was prepositions or, or Charles de Gaulle. Uh, throughout the Second World War, when he was 100% engaged, he still had time to send humorous cables to Roosevelt and others. So I think humor is important. I think it's the great, uh, uh, it's a kind of safety valve even. What was the impetus for White House Chronicle? Um, you had hosted a show on the economy in Wall Street before that. It was a, a very different show. Well, from I had Chronicle. a little publication, which was called White House Weekly. I, uh, and, uh, but it was somewhat overwhelmed by the appearance of new, intensive White House coverage, from, largely from Politico uh, and, to a lesser extent, from The Hill. Uh, and we, we wanted to keep the idea alive and wasn't clear that we could do it in a publication with very limited resources. And um, the uh, business model wasn't, it neither fit the, the high-priced newsletter, nor did it have circulation enough. It was quite successful in that people liked it, uh, but circulation enough to attract advertising. And uh, I met a man, a friend of mine, oh, I knew him by sight, in the National Press Club, and his name was Mike Marlowe. And he said, uh, uh, you should have a radio network. I know how to put a radio network together. And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. Do you need work? He said, yes, I need work. I said, well, you can come and run conferences. I used to run conferences. But he mentioned several times the radio network, and I said, go for it. And Stevens Institute of Technology, the president there at the time, Hal Ravishay was a very forward-thinking man, and he wanted, he thought they should be involved in radio. But we didn't get an audience because it was, it was, there was no audience unless you were on NPR. Uh, but we thought, why not put it on television? The, the, the station in Washington, there's two major stations in Washington, WETA, which is like, WGBH in Boston. It's a big PBS, well-funded PBS station. And there's the less uh, well-known WHUT, which is the Howard University station, once belonged to the Washington Post and was given to Howard University by Catherine Graham, then publisher of the Washington Post. And we went, we made a, we made a pilot, went there, and they liked it, and they put it on the air. And now it's, uh, now it's 20 years later. It was all due in, in large measure to Mike Marlow and to Stevens Institute, which gave us 
incredible because it's so hard to raise money these days. Gave us $100,000 like that to get on with it. And uh, that was a tremendous thing. What do you attribute the longevity of the show to? Stubbornness. Stubbornness? Um, well, you just keep going. I like doing it. One likes doing it. And one feels one is the correspondence is so encouraging. Um, I said stubbornness. Um, television programs don't last very long, generally. Uh, television is a very strange medium. Uh, it, it makes its own cliches. It wears out its own audience. In entertainment television, 11 years, which was MASH, is phenomenal. Right. Unbelievable. Um, it, but um, I think because it fills a need, it has changed radically. Mm -hmm. When I started it, what I had in mind, and Mike, Mike Marlowe, who was helping me and worked for me, and who was a huge contributor, unfortunately, is dead now. Uh, but what we had in mind was getting journalists on panels to talk about the news because people were reading these bylines but didn't know the players. Since then, everything has changed. We have dedicated political channels, Fox, MSNBC, and three others now. Right. Uh, they have nothing on but panels of journalists discussing the news. That's what they use. Right. There's a reason for that, and that is politicians are very scared these days to say anything definitive, and they tend to stay on their talking points, which is very boring. Uh, so we've changed it. We're telling stories, and we're looking at how we live now, which I think was a, a phrase from Trollope. Um, the New York Times used it for a while. But I always thought it was a good description of how we live now and how life is changing uh, with the, the nexus between politics, technology, and just social trends. Our life has changed much more radically by the internet than it has been changed by politics. Unless there's major disasters or wars, um, the incremental change produced by, by uh, technology is, is huge. I mean, people really don't think about it. When I was a young reporter in Washington, in London and earlier in Africa, if somebody showed you a letter because they wanted you to use it, leaking you something, that's what they call it now, um, you had to copy it out by hand. And they were very worried because they would know where it had come from. There were only one or two or four copies at the most that you could read in, when you're putting carbon paper in a typewriter. Right. Um, Long came the Xerox, changed all that. Long came the fax, and you could get the letter anonymously, uh, and then the internet. It is all so different. Um, when I first worked as a writer in television at the BBC in London, uh, we would have a lot of news broadcasts where the film was out of date because there were no satellites. The film didn't come by satellite, it came by airplane and by a chap who had a big packy head on his back on a motorcycle from Heathrow, which was then called London Airport. Um, uh, and you were always waiting for it to come. So you had a lot of news items which said the situation was getting back to normal in Bangladesh today. After these terrible floods last week, old film of floods. 
and a lot more of, um, of what you might what we call file film. Seas such as these were lashing the south coast of England today. Roll those tired old waves from last year. Um, <laughs> uh, technology has speeded up news in that sense, probably more than any other. The instant nature of pictures, of graphics, and our visual expectations have changed out of all recognition. We used to watch somebody reading the news and um, maybe a still photograph of the president or the premier, whoever. Uh, that was what you got. Now you expect to see them in action. The very mention of the president, you expect to see him on film then. Visual expectations for television coverage are very high and expectations for speed are very high. Uh, we want to be at the scene. Uh, part of it is that uh, we're just like that as human beings, and part of it is that we can do it now. You imagine 100 years ago, we had a way to get your news in a newspaper, which was uh, produced more slowly than it, they are today. Again, technology has made a lot of difference. Newspapers only really got that sped up a lot with the invention of the linotype machine in, I think, 1894 or something like that, which wasn't that long ago. Right. Uh, so uh, news as we know it is a relatively recent commodity, although it's always been around by humor, by town crier, uh, by pamphlet. Technology is going to change our lives more, I think. You have new incredible materials just coming down the pike. Uh, that will change everything. Graphene, a single layer of, of mattress. Uh, it's a single layer of atoms, carbon atoms, which is stronger than steel and flexible. There. It, it's going to change things. You'll have a computer which you can fold up and put in your pocket, or a television set that you can put in your hip, in your wallet, and then just unfold it. Incredible things. But also, you're going to have self-driving cars. I just wrote in my syndicated column recently about uh, electric airplanes. Don't laugh, there's maybe one flying in Dubai next month, uh, which would be a small single engine, sort of half drone, half airplane, electric with batteries, enough for half an hour of flight. Oh my uh, so the change is everywhere. The, 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 and we don't know quite where it's going. I think there's always reluctance, there's always slowness, um, and there's legacy, you know, legacy of investment. Let's not change. Legacy of familiarity. Uh, I did not, in my little business, uh, stop printing newsletters and make them electronic. I should have. I didn't. I loved printing. I grew up with printing. From the age of 14, I'd been around printing. Um, so there's legacy, this human legacy, this disinclination to change. That's why so much that's inventive and radical comes from people in their early 20s, which is really this great creative period uh, in new things. In human lives, I think the great period is 30 to 40, uh, because a lot of the pain and difficulty of being a young person are out of the way but the idealism is still intact, the energy and enthusiasm is still there. That's why 30 to 40 is a good period. But in science, in the theater, in music, get them young. That's when they're really going wild. <laughs>
That's before they've been disillusioned, knocked down, or commercial reality has intruded, uh, which is usually false commercial reality, because if they're allowed to succeed, then there is a new commercial reality. Uh, look at rock and roll, how that came on. You, I can remember the resistance to it. It was the devil's music. It was the beginning of the end. It was unbelievable. Uh, <clears throat> it would speed up the second coming because it was so bad. Uh, and we, of course, it's now the prince, the base of popular music. So much of your reporting and writing uh, in your column and also on the White House Chronicle has addressed uh, energy. And you talk uh, at length uh, in your interviews about the water, fuel, and food ratio. Well, um, I think. How did you get onto energy? Well, because I, I, I published the Energy Daily for more than 30 years. And I found I published other things, but that was the one I've, I took the most interest in because energy is good for people. Um, <laughs> It really is. Um, we live better because of it. You think back, say, 150 years ago, you probably never heard music because there was no recorded music and no energy to make it work if there were. Um, you probably didn't read a lot because you had no light at night. Um, and you probably didn't get very far from where you were born. You probably went to church more partly to listen to music. So I think energy is very important. And the future, if we're going to clean up the environment, we're going to do it by cleaning up energy, all energy, not just power plants, but automobiles, for example. You know, we make a lot of fuss about what comes out of the stack, but we don't want to say so much about our car because of the personal mobility. We treasure our cars, and, and so we should. Uh, because, you know, a hundred years ago, there was no personal mobility unless trains had come in, you could take the train. There was the beginning of public transportation. If you went to Europe or something, of course, it was weeks on a, on a, a, a ship. It wasn't a quick and easy business. Now we do it overnight. Uh, energy is hugely important. Uh, and if we're going to clean up all of those aspects of the environment, we need to clean up. Everything points to more energy, not using less, using more. For example, one way of getting rid of a lot of garbage is with um, plasma firm, uh, furnaces. It's still got to be developed more, but it works. Uh, that would take a lot of energy if we did that, if we got rid of dumps, for example. If we're going to capture carbon in different ways before it gets in the environment. That changes the equation of a power plant because a certain amount of that power has to go to the capture of the carbon. The technology's there, the economics are not. And uh, people live better. I was once in India and I was talking to a professor in New Delhi at the university and like many <coughs> people who hadn't been to India before, although we'd read a lot about it, uh, particularly if you were British who were brought up with the empire, the Raj, and, and this extraordinary relationship between uh, England, I say that advisedly, and India. Um, and so, but, but I hadn't experienced it firsthand. And I was appalled, as every visitor is, by the poverty, the lack of hygiene, the, the lack of knowledge of hygiene, 
the habit of public defecation and all of these things. And I said, just overwhelmed by this to this professor, you're going to need hundreds of thousands, no, 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 millions of hygiene workers just to teach people not to do these things because they're killing themselves with disease. And he said, oh no, we have a solution. And I said, you do? What's that? He said, it's called an electric grid. Did not know I knew something about electricity. And I said, how does that work? And he said, well, when we, when we electrify a village, all sorts of good things happen. Uh, the birth rate goes down, which you could make a joke about that, that at the critical hours, people are uh, watching television and not, um, you know. Um, but basically, aspirations go up, and people just see different ways of doing things. Education. Television has a huge initial impact. It is a tremendous tool in its beginning in a society. And then it tapers off in its, in its constructive effect because fundamentally, television is a very inefficient medium. But we can talk about that. But uh, it takes energy. You, you electrify, and as he said, the Indians are natural engineers, they're very good. He said, they will get a television set, it may be black and white, and it will be running, and the village will change. Suddenly people will be washing their hands, doing all sorts of things they have never done. And hygiene is a big problem in India, uh, a huge problem. I've seen, I've seen uh, butcher shops next to a sewer with a fly sitting on the meat and then people coming and buying the meat where the flies have been sitting on it. Um, we, we don't, we, that's, a, that's a, something that has to be eradicated in the health of the Indian people who are now maybe the largest population on earth. We, it's just exceeded China, I believe. Um, more than a billion people, more than a billion three. Uh, this is a very large part of the, these people deserve to be healthy. And they also deserve to have some of the things that we have. Entertainment, comfort, light, uh, climate amelioration with air conditioning and heating. Energy is very important, and it's going to get more so as we get electric cars, electric airplanes, electric uh, many things. The two things hold up the total electrification of society. The quality and endurance of batteries, or some other mechanism for storing energy. Uh, windmills, solar, all becomes more valuable, much more valuable when you've got a good storage system. And the, the electric uh, uh, system doesn't have the peaks and valleys that it has now. Four, five o'clock, six o'clock, and a summer night all up the east coast of the United States Everybody is getting home, turning on the television, turning on the air conditioning, turning on the stove, taking a shower. It's a huge load. If you can smooth that out by using some of the electricity that came the night before uh, from wind, or which came in the middle of the day when there's very little demand from the sun. Energy continues to be important. I like it as a subject because it's good for people. And there's not, not everything is good for people. Defense is not good for people. We call it defense, it's war. It's not good for people, it's very bad for people. I read a figure recently that estimates the United States uses 60% more energy than it produces. Um, I don't think that's right anymore. 
that has changed radically because technology has changed the supply of oil and gas. <coughs> um, I'm sure that is no longer correct. We're much closer to self-sufficiently. We're still using as much as we ever did. We're just producing more oil and gas. We import electricity from Canada, which is a net good. It's a good thing to do. We still import oil. Uh, we import very, very little gas, most of, um, and mostly that's a convenience thing. We imported from Canada in a couple of places, I think. Uh, but we're not bringing in liquefied natural gas anymore. We're sending it out. And it's a, it's a technology thing. We now know how to squeeze gas and oil out of tight formations with the technology known as fracking, which is really a whole suite of technologies. 3D seismic, better drill heads, better understanding of the geology, and the ability to direction to, to send drill bits horizontally and to do very fancy things down the hole. And, uh, it, and it's had a huge impact, way beyond anything that people expected. I did a study, or worked on a study, I wrote the executive summary, I think, for President Nixon on after the first oil crisis in 73, winter of 73, 74. And things were bleak. We had coal, and so we thought, have to burn coal, turn it into oil, turn it into gas, that's all you've got, and nuclear power. That was, those were the options. There weren't other options. Gas was largely held to be a totally depleted resource. Coal plentiful, oil short, we had to import it, and we were just gone up to importing like 65, 70% of our oil, 65 I think was our highest around there, of our oil. It was a very grim time, and our solutions, the people who worked on the study and myself, were that more electrification, and the electrification of transportation, before there were viable electric cars, but electrifying the railroads more. The only place the railroads are electrified is in the Northeast Corridor, from Washington to Boston and 600 miles in the Midwest. Otherwise, we use diesel. Well, everything has changed. Um, but we're getting a bit spendthrift with it, and it has an impact. It has an impact on the environment. I'm not uh, jumping up with joy because of the gas rev uh, 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 revolution, uh, and one day we'll run out of it anyway, but the environmental impact is, is there. Uh, gas is about half the impact in combustion of coal, but there's an open issue of other environmental consequences. One is the escape of, of methane from the procedure, and the second one is injection wells, where the brine, this nasty stuff, has got chemicals and uh, all sorts of things in it that are injected under pressure deep into the earth because they don't know what to do with it. And it appears to be causing small earth tremors, particularly in Oklahoma. If you get a big earthquake from it, it will become a no-no, and suddenly our precarious relationship to, to this technology will come to an end, or certainly it will be curbed. But technology improves all the time. Technology improving slightly each year is a kind of compound interest. Uh, it works. Things get better. You've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. I wonder if I might ask you uh, 
maybe uh, leave us with one story. When I was doing my research for our sit-down, I read a bio of yours that said you began your career at the age of 16 as a correspondent for Time magazine? Well, I worked for the correspondent. You worked for the correspondent. So, yes. In no, Rhodesia. I had direct in Rhodesia, now in Zimbabwe. I, I did file directly to Time magazine. Occasionally, I got a phrase in because everything was so harshly rewritten. Um, I did go for Life magazine, the sister paper, to Dar es Salaam for the coronation of the Aga Khan in 1957. But at that time, Time and Life worked like a Hollywood studio. They had a lot of money for the coronation. They flew me in to get taxis and secure facilities. <coughs> uh, they flew a writer in from London and two photographers, one from Rome and one from, I forget where the other one came from, from London. I think Brian Bray from London, somebody else from Rome. Uh, they were but like movies, and I was very lucky to be part of this incredible well, of course, I thought it would go on forever. How does a 16-year-old come to work with Time magazine? Lots of things in life are dumb luck. And this was dumb luck on my part. I got a job with a man called Eric Robbins. He's dead now. He was a very famous uh, African correspondent. Uh, he had been uh, thrown out of South Africa by the uh, apartheid movement. He'd gotten to southern Rhodesia. Eventually, he was thrown out of southern Rhodesia and ended his days in Kenya. Uh, but he was a very uh, progressive journalist, etc. And he had these strings, what we called strings, where you worked for a newspaper and they paid you a little bit or they, or they expected you to file and they paid you. And the prize was Time Magazine or Time Life, the whole setup, because they paid in by our standards, an enormous amount of money. We'd get $8 a day. That was a fortune. That was a lot of money in the 1950s. And it was a lot of money in Africa. It might not have been quite so much in New York, but even then. Uh, and they operated a bit more like a movie uh, operation. Sent people things, loved to sort of deploy the troops. Um, and it was great fun. And uh, my, my sort of principal memory, there were several things, but one that I remember particularly was I was sent to the coronation of the Aga Khan in Dar es Salaam in 1957, uh, where they weigh him out in diamonds and whatever his age, I can't remember what it was. He was gold. Um, I, in fact, I was withdrawn. I was sent ahead and withdrawn right before the ceremony. But uh, as I said, they were like a movie. Um, they flew in, uh, I think, two writers, two photographers, and myself. And I had to do things like hire all the taxis, hire all the taxis that had roof racks in case the photographers wanted to stand on them. I mean, their idea was it was like the movie company has come to town, Time Life has come to town. And it was an extraordinary business working for them. Uh, they believed, in, particularly in photography, that you can make it better if you try harder. They went for the last 5%. And this is just an interesting thing in life. Is it worth the last 5%? We've tripled the effort, tripled the expense, or quadrupled the expense to get that one photograph that might be different. Um, there's no evidence you actually get it, but, but the effort somehow is its own reward. And they did some amazing things. Um, and the writing, 
I like the old-time magazine writing, which the, the sort of reverse sentences, as somebody um, in, in the New Yorker parodying has said, <coughs> backward ran the sentences till reeled the mind. <laughs> um, but, but he was new, he was innovative, and it was wonderful. The world was a possibility. Henry Luce himself, who owned it, uh, you know, believed his life was devoted to fighting communism everywhere. He sent me around South Central Africa uh, in a small airplane with a pilot uh, uh, looking for communists, not to be published. He just wanted to know. Well, it was ludicrous. Nobody had ever heard of a communist, but you would go into, a, into a, an African uh, village you would ask to see the head man. He would welcome you very cautiously because that's how it was. And you would say, are you a communist, sir? And he'd say, what is that? You would explain it to him that communists believe that the, you had to share your cattle and share your, everything you had. And he said, those are very bad people. We don't want <laughs> So I could then write back to Henry Lewis, Chief McGuando of Guero uh, today, denounced communism and said it would have no future in Central Africa. <laughs> There's a lot of that in journalism. Uh, so when you, you, it's called making bricks without straw. This was not for publication, and I tried as best I could to explain these things. I don't know whether Luce actually read them or not, but his uh, staff kept them coming. Uh, he was very interesting. Uh, he changed journalism a lot. Uh, he created the modern news magazine. I think it's a pity in some ways that it's gotten off it. Closest you come to, to uh, I think, a really first-rate news magazine now is The Economist. And there you're up against the 24-hour cycle. Uh, a lot of it is, I get it on, on uh, electronically as well as the paper edition, and they are having to supplement. Uh, the 24 hours is changing everything. And you wonder where the thoughtful, the reflective is going to appear. And it's not clear. We, we don't know. You would think it would come out of the universities, but I don't see it. I see uh, awful stuff coming out of universities uh, uh, because of the setup there. Someday we might talk about why is the productivity of university professors so excruciatingly low. What does that 16-year-old boy working in uh, Rhodesia think of this life in news and journalism? I think it's a very great privilege. It's a wonderful way to live. You may not make much money. You may not be loved all the time. You're loved sporadically, and be careful of that. Uh, you know, the, the two great imposters, Triumph and Disaster, and Kipling's Air for. Uh, Churchill said that uh, fame was not permanent and uh, failure was not uh, was not final, um, or, or the other way around. It doesn't matter. It's a great quote. Uh, it's a wonderful life. You meet people you would never have met. You had a mobility you would never have, and you personally can fight back. Just a sense that you can fight back, that you don't have to take it. And that's more true today than ever with the blogs, where you can express an opinion. You don't have to hope that an editorial page writer will publish it or editor. Um, but as a job, it's, it's high adrenaline, 
high excitement, and every day is new. You couldn't ask for much more. It's wonderful. Llewellyn King, thank you so much for your time and your, and your stories and your, your graciousness for inviting us into your home. It's a pleasure. Thank a you so much. Real pleasure. Thank you so much to Llewellyn King and Linda Gasparello of the White House Chronicle. They're celebrating 20 years on the air this year. Congratulations. Linda, thank you so much for my private tour of the Royal Mills. This is the end of Season 1 of This Is Happening America. Thank you so much to everyone who liked, shared, and subscribed to the show. We're so excited to bring you the next round of stories in Season 2. We'll see you this fall in October. To find out more about the show, visit us online at thisishappeningamerica.com. There you'll find links to all of our social media platforms. Our email address is thisishappeningamerica at gmail.com. I'm Justin Mara for This Is Happening America. Thanks for listening.